I almost call it a TNT because it looks like a Tesla and a Tatra, which is the old Czech cars that were very aerodynamic. Ladies and gentlemen, hello, good evening. Today is Saturday, December 10th, 2022. I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. And in weekend slumming it mode, we are the Pirates of Clean Tech. Yar! Yar! you? <laughs> Even though nobody watches us on YouTube, I am wearing a baseball cap, which I shouldn't be. I should be, you know, professionally, dressed professionally, but <laughs> it's Saturday. <laughs> I'm just out doing Christmas shopping. I think a baseball cap's okay. I've got my trademark green shirt on. I'm ready to go. You do. I'm wearing my Nike, uh, my my Russian mafia jumper. <laughs> I actually, it's funny. I actually took off my fleece and put this on. And so I'm almost becoming, this is my Mr. Rogers jacket. <laughs> it's Polish so, mafia, no? Polish. Polish Slovak mafia. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, listen, before we go into our articles and catch up, I can tell you a funny story happened to me last night. So I'm, I'm here working, working the day job around 6 p.m. And our doorbell rings. And my wife's working from home too. So usually it's just a package drop, but then the doorbell rang a second time. So I'm like, okay, uh, I'll go downstairs and see what it is and open the door. And and here's a gentleman named Jim, you know, skinny guy, younger gentleman, maybe mid to late twenties, you know, got a millennial beard a little bit freezing. Looks like he's freezing. And uh, he asked me if I'm interested in having a conversation about the state of New York and the oil and gas industry. Hmm. I said, absolutely. I invited him in, but of course, you know, I don't think he's allowed to come in. So I decided to go sit outside with him on the front porch, freezing out there, 30 degrees. And here he's with an organization called NYPIRG. Uh, And I think NYPIRG is the New York Public Interest Research Group Fund. Mm -hmm. And I've heard of them, but didn't know much about them. And effectively, he was asking that they're raising money to effectively create a super fund for New York State that will be funded by the oil and gas industry Hmm. for their destruction of climate change. And that the super fund would be used uh, in kind of like Hurricane Ida, Hurricane Superstorm Sandy situations in which, you know, New York City residents and New York State residents have to rebuild because of damages caused by climate change from these storms. So we had a wonderful discussion. Jim did a great job presenting. Uh, I think I'm ultimately going to give a few dollars just because of Jim and and what he had done. Uh, (laughs) But it was really, I want to give a shout out because honestly, I don't believe in everything that I believes in. You know, they're anti-fracking. Whereas I actually do believe in the shale and oil and gas industry. I believe in using natural gas as a supplement to uh, coal. So I'm not 100% aligned with them, but you got to give a shout out to someone on a freezing cold Friday night going door to door to raise environmental awareness. So uh, he got a free cup of coffee for me and uh, he went on his way. <laughs> but so I got to give a shout out to Jim and the whole gang of volunteers and workers and organizers at NYPIRG who were going door to door raising awareness like that. Yeah, I think uh, they're a public interest group, right? So they try and support positions that uh, are in the public interest, but maybe are not getting enough uh, support as it is from the government or from corporations. So, yeah, definitely look into them if if you're interested. Yeah, and and honestly, the timing was interesting because our fellow pirate Rob Parker sent us an article today that's not going to make today's, uh, maybe it'll make the next one. About, you know, congressional Democrats are finding out that the oil and gas industry is still not playing nice on climate change. <laughs> so uh, so that may be a discussion point for our next one. Who knew? I mean, I'm seeing a lot of uh, climate denialism articles out again, too. So, yeah, I think they're out there doing what they do. Don't disagree with that. Uh, <laughs> well, Lucas, I know you're uh, I know you have a little bit of a scratchy throat. 
from uh, too much banter uh, at several conferences this week. So uh, we can be very expeditious in our article reading today. Yeah, okay. You, you can go first. Okay, well, um, we didn't do articles when we had the great guest, uh, Jeremy McCool and Hemo. So we're a little bit backed up. So I've actually got five, but I got five very interesting ones and I'm going to go through them quickly, uh, but I loved all of them. Here's a great website I discovered, <clears throat> excuse me, interestingengineering.com. This is from December 4th. Uh, Lucia Papadopoulos, Airbus, unveils zero emission hybrid powered fuel cell engine. I just thought this was a great story. This made a lot of headlines throughout a lot of the media uh, last week. But, you know, Airbus has a couple test vehicles, uh, test aircraft, including you converting an A380, their super jumbo, to testing alternative fuel technologies. And so they're going to be adding a fuel cell engine design. Uh, Just looking at this, you know, they started some collaborations with some fuel cell developers going back three, four years. They are launching this. They believe they have the potential by 2035 of a hydrogen fuel cell aircraft capable of carrying a hundred passengers going a thousand miles. So this is roughly bigger than your kind of average commuter aircraft, uh, but not quite, you know, your single aisle, like your 737 or your A320s. I thought this was really fascinating. And maybe my big takeaway from this is what the airline industry and aircraft makers are doing for commercial airlines to really decarbonize it. And if you think about it, you know, think about Richard Branson, what he's done, he was a catalyst for using biofuels. I think Virgin was one of the first airlines to start using biofuels. There's pros and cons associated with biofuels because of the opportunity cost of harvesting for jet fuel as opposed to using that for, for real cropland. And there's all kinds of conversations there. Yeah. Airbus is also supporting, along with others, electric aircraft development. I think there's a Swedish firm that's ready to come to market with a commuter aircraft um, that's going to be you know fully battery electric. So that's in the works. Uh, and then you think about like the country of France, which I don't have posted here, but recent, recently, excuse me again, they've come out with an initiative. I think they're going to be banning all inter, intra-country flights in the near future. So you, if you're going to travel within between two cities in France, you're going to have to do so by high-speed rail. So, you know, if you take all of that together, I think you're going to start really seeing initiatives by the airline industry and commercial flights that's really decarbonizing that industry and that's going to start having meaningful impact in about five to 10 years. So there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of how green hydrogen is. But I love the fact that they're not sitting on their laurels waiting for it. They're actually doing something here. So great article, in my opinion. Yeah, this engine looks great. We've known about this Airbus effort for a while now. I think one of the issues is that um, hydrogen is not very energy dense. So actually, the most important part of this article was the very last paragraph for me. <laughs> that they have a novel cryogenic hydrogen storage tank, which drops it down to like negative 260 degrees or something like this. And presumably that gives them more energy density so that this will work. So it looks like to me, all the theoretical challenges have been dealt with. Um, and it just looks like we're waiting for the en- the engineering to get there. So this is, this looks like it's it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and to those, even like in terms of also about the feasibility of have, having a fuel cell vehicle in terms of, Downtime at the airport, you know, they're talking about they've created a cartridge system for the fuel cells in which they think they can be replaced quickly, you know, so that refueling would not take a long time and wouldn't challenge maybe the uh, infrastructure at airports. So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. These, you know, Airbus was very careful in their press release on this, talking about this all being potential, not necessarily being in the bag, but that's what R&D is all about. So 
I just wanted to bring to the attention, I think the commercial air, airline industry and the commercial aircraft industry and the airline industry are doing a lot right now to decarbonize. Uh, it'll never fully be decarbonized, in my opinion, but it's going to make great, great strides in the next 10 years. Yeah, okay. Okay, Business Insider uh, from Hannah Gennahan, November 20th. So this one goes back a little bit. And we didn't talk about this. I think it's one of the articles I had teed up uh, when uh, when we were having Jeremy on, but we just didn't get around to articles. U.S. reverses position and agrees to put money towards a fund that will help poor nations address climate change. And, you know, this comes out of COP27, which took place in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Uh, Didn't say that right. Sharm el-Sheikh, I think. Um, You know, again, another good article that talks about the fact that it's really going on 30 years now that the, quote, developing nations have been asking the developed countries to help fund mitigation efforts on climate change because smaller island nations, smaller, poorer economies were the ones not putting the carbon in the air but they're the ones suffering the most from it. Shoreline erosion, beach erosion, infrastructure uh, challenges, et cetera. So I believe the number is roughly around 30 countries uh, on the developed side are going to be putting a fund together. Uh, there's some efforts make, to make sure that China is not one of the recipients. And I just think there's some controversy associated with that, of course, but that really just has to do with like, you know, the reserves and the, the financial prowess of China having the ability to really kind of take care of, plus they are one of the largest emitters now. Right. So, you know, they, they quoted a lot of uh, Pakistani government officials here who, you know, if you've noticed over the last year or two, Pakistan's been just really getting bombarded with horrible flooding, you know, avalanche, kind of like mudslide, fa- uh, you know, flooding situations that are taking out whole villages. So uh, this is a bit of a win-win here. I believe this is the right thing to do, but like everything when it comes to, you know, transferring the money from one government to the other, I just worry about the oversight. It <laughs> has to be essential. There has to be a mechanism in place to make sure this money is getting to the right place. Uh, I think everyone is thinking that way. I think people are going to be altruistic. And I think uh, this could really, if done, ex- if it executed correctly, could really be a catalyst to help these poorer countries develop their own climate strategies that benefits all of us in the end run. Yeah. I mean, my concern is that this is meant to come from developed nations to undeveloped or lesser developed nations that are suffering damages from climate change. But yeah, like you said, there are some developing nations that are huge contributors to CO2 output. So that's the kind of check I would want. Uh, I agree. I don't want it going to to large emitters like China. I want to go, I would rather see the money go to countries that are not emitting uh, CO2 well, that are feeling I, the damages. That, I think, you know, well, I those think are the only ones. Case. I think right? that's going to be the case ultimately. You know, I hope so. <laughs> and I think, you know, for example, a dollar spent in the Seychelles Islands, right, are probably going to be, you know, more effective than a dollar spent in, um, I don't know, maybe, you know, China or India, for example, right? Yeah. Um, so I think people are going to take care of those really smaller countries first because, you, you know, you're also going to be able to show victories. You know, infrastructure costs to redevelop something on an island economy is going to be a lot easier than developing a larger com- country that maybe was suffering and now is also contributing. So um, right. if I recall, like I said, there are 30 nations that I think are going to contribute to the fund. So effectively, that's probably going to be your G20 plus another 10 or so. And I mean, why do you have to be a developed nation? I mean, if you're emitting, you're causing damages, you need to pay for them. 
I don't care if you're developing or not developed. Well, look, there's some reality there. If you're just developing right now and you're just beginning to emit, how much do you have in the bank? How much in do you the have? In the yeah, bank? okay. So, so, look, it's a start. Okay. And again, I don't think, that, I don't want this to get, you know, too blown out of proportion. I just want, you know, some small victories helping those who absolutely need it. Uh, yeah, well, I would rather see more progress on us cutting emissions and getting into carbon capture than than talking about throwing money around. Well, look, first off, don't forget, this was just one thing that came out of COP27, right? Yeah, COP26 yeah. was the bigger catalyst that addressed exactly what you just asked about. But this has been on the table forever. So everyone looked at it as a victory. Um, what do they call it? I think they call it a loss and damage fund, right? Yeah. So something came out of it. And I think that's the important part. Something came out. So we'll be keeping a close eye on it, but, um, and I'd be curious for our listeners, if they have any opinions on it, you know, please let us know what you think. How can this be executed correctly? Um, But yeah, I agree with you. It's, you know, this is a little bit of defense where COP26 was more about offense. Yeah. So, okay. We're, we're moving along. We're being very efficient here today. Uh, This was uh, NBC News. Just, you know, kind of caught my eye last week because I've really been starting to pay attention to offshore wind, especially given stuff happening here in New York State. Sail jumpstarts floating offshore wind power in U.S. waters. Offshore wind is well established in the U.K. and other countries, but just beginning to ramp up on America's coast. For anyone who's actually going to visually look at this article and click on the link, there's a fantastic top photo of the five turbines that are off Block Island in Rhode Island. And they talk about this. this these are the first five floating wind turbines offshore. Maybe just offshore. I'm not sure if they're floaters. I think these are not floaters. But anyways, these are the ones that are the first five in the United States. Um, we thought there'd be a lot more progress now. Obviously, New York, New Jersey have some in the pipeline. Massachusetts, I think, is stalling. It sounds like Cape Wind is slow. But this was talking about that an auction took place. It should have been last week because this article is from uh, December 5th. But they're talking about an auction would have taken place for, I think, three areas, both in the central coast and the northern coast of California. And I think 43 companies from around the world are approved to bid. And the turbines are going to be, you know, roughly 25 short, 25 miles offshore. These are going to be floating uh, turbines. So it's going to be uh, effectively a turbine that's built on top of a platform. And the platform is going to have an anchor that goes to the seabed, but it's not going to be permanently attached, if you will. It's really more of this, this, uh, you know, line mechanism. Um, these turbines are supposed to be incredibly large. I don't know if there was a megawatt uh, number that was given, but I think we're talking closer to 10 megawatt than we are closer to three. Uh, and also, uh, you know, we're talking about towers that are so large that they're going to be about the size and height of the Eiffel Tower. And they're talking about, you know, California is got some prime real estate right on the coastline, like old industrial um, property that can be great for final assembly of these turbines because it sounds like they're going to have to be barged out erect. Uh, which kind of blows my mind away. I'd like to see how the engineering and that's going to work, but that's how they're going to be kind of towed in place, I think, and then dropped in. Hmm. Sounds fascinating. Now, mm-hmm. the one thing, of course, in this, uh, they, they had to point out that there is some constructive opposition. That's the term I'm using. Uh, people are really worried about whale migration, worried about bird migration. Uh, and there's even some uh, Native American lands uh, in on California that are mountaintop that a few of the towers are going to be so tall that they could actually interfere with like prayer and ritual taking place like on the mountaintops of California. And what I like about it is everybody's coming to the table to find ways to mitigate those. Um, I think probably there's got to be technology right now that's going to be able to keep birds from crashing into the turbines, keep whales from running into the, um, 
into the the anchors, if you will. So I feel, you know, really proud of the fact that like this is taking place. The one takeaway though that made me really think about it, it's surprising that the first offshore in the United States was off the East Coast and not the West Coast, especially California. You think California would have had offshore a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And it's just a little surprising for me that they're actually the second to the table. Uh, <laughs> we don't necessarily have to get into those politics today, but really good article. Just another sense of optimism I have that we're really getting to where we need to be. Uh, and especially with storage, you know, storage is going to be a crucial part of helping with offshore wind, even though wind, you know, generally offshore blows more consistently. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so that's a big, that's a big factor, but they're still saying that I think storage is going to be a big factor in making sure offshore is as effective as possible. Yeah. I've been following this story. I saw the numbers come in. Again, they were way bigger than I ever thought they would be, uh, but they didn't reach what uh, the earlier auctions had gone for. Those earlier ones netted four billion, according to this article. Uh, this one hit seven hundred million, I think, if I'm quoting it correctly, which is still a huge, huge number. So, very interested to see these going down. The article also says that the cost of building these things have dropped sixty percent since 2010, which is awesome. Also, so this will be very, very cheap power for us. You know, I'd be, I'd be curious because, like, obviously, this is that's backward data. And they said the cost even dropped another 13% 2021 alone. Alone, yep. Yeah, I don't know about that now, though. 2022 in an inflationary environment, I think that's <laughs> probably wiped out. Yeah. But, okay, well, moving along, uh, a little bit something off the beat. But, uh, you know, I was looking up for some good ag tech stories, and I just wanted to find one of those little victory ones. This is from the Irish Farmers Journal, which I'm sure most of us don't read on a daily basis. December 5th, 2022, Stephen Robb, construction starts of a 4.8 million euro ag tech innovation center at UCD Lions Farm. So in the area of Kildare in Ireland, which I've never been to Ireland, people love it. um, They're building an ag tech incubator. And what I like about this is this is going to look at, you know, both agricultural technologies, you know, food technology, which obviously dovetails with it, but also veterinary technology. And so it's going to be a hub for, you know, there's going to be research centers there. There's going to be collaborations with large companies and startups. Uh, They want to look at agri-food. They want to look at veterinary sectors. Um, This is going to be located right in the heart of Irish farm country, uh, which is exactly what we need to be doing in the United States, putting these types of incubators right where the the, the talent is that can come up with such innovations. You know, if you look at the U.S. ag tech sector, I'm, I'm just mind blown by the fact that deals are taking place out of like New York and San Fran. But, you know, there's not a lot of ag tech venture capital taking place in like the heartland, like Kansas City, Omaha, et cetera. I think if you start putting these types of incubators throughout the United States where the farming is and you connect it with, you know, East Coast and West Coast money, the innovation will just skyrocket after this. So I just like this story because I just thought there was enough to be said that Ireland is being progressive and proactive and we could follow from their example. Yeah, very cool to see this. We always need more innovation and more uh, accelerators and more support. So good to see. Yep. All right. So my last story, and this is actually like, you know, best for last in some ways, but, you know, I always am a little bit worried that we talk about electric vehicles and then charging infrastructure a lot on this uh, show. Mm -hmm. This one is great. This is from Electric. This is from November 30th. Uh, Scooter Dole. I mean, I'm not sure that's a real name, Scooter, but it's a perfect name to be covering, I think, the uh, mobility industry. Lightyear wins race to market with start of solar EV production in Finland. 
So Lightyear, if I recall, is a Dutch company. It was started in 2016. And the best is was started by a bunch of university students who were competing in one of those, you know, solar car race, solar car technology development, um, you know, type of uh, programming. Mm -hmm. We have those in the United States too. Well, they came out with a model that was so effective to build off of that they're actually creating a passenger vehicle. And you can see on the photo, if anyone's looking at the article, you know, the frame of it looks like a Tesla from the front. I almost call it a TNT because it looks like a Tesla and a Tatra, which is the old Czech cars that were very aerodynamic because they were really like, you know, innovative for their time in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Mm-hmm. This thing's going to be completely solar. It's going to be expensive. It's like 256,000 euro per car. Uh, there's a an assembly shop that's in Finland that has great reputation for building boutique vehicles. So unfortunately, the Dutch really lost a lot of their manufacturing proudness when they, you know, kind of migrated everything to offshore oil and gas. Offshore oil and gas like became so predominant as part of their economy. And it took all the good talent and good employees that other <laughs> manufacturers in the Netherlands folded up. So they don't have the manufacturing capability that they used to. So these, these Dutch students effectively had to go over to Finland. So, and build this car, but I am so looking forward to this car. I think it's great. I can't wait to see one on the road. I can't wait to see one. I think they said there's going to be one at the CES trade show in Vegas in January. Um, and then like their full design reveal for next summer. So they're starting with a $250,000 car, but much like Tesla, they have one for the EU and the US targeted at 30,000. That's coming to market. I think that's the one that's going to be revealed uh, sometime next year. Yeah. So this is just a great story. This is just, you know, entrepreneurism at its absolute finest. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, the 2025 is the anticipation, anticipated release date for the Lightyear 2 at $30,000. Yeah, very interested too. Uh, excels in uh, aerodynamics and efficiency with a point zero point one seven five Jag coefficient, right. which is currently the most aerodynamic production vehicle ever made. So very cool to see. Um, these being built like this if anyone needs any reference a 1985 pontiac trans am because i used to have the, the <laughs> advertisement i cut it out it was on my wall in my bedroom as a kid that was a 0.32 drag coefficient that was a pretty aerodynamic car yeah and i think modern corvettes are you know even under that like around 0. 0.29 0. 0.3 so for this to be almost you know under 0. 0.2 that's incredible yeah and for those who can't see it literally has like the hood and the roof are a solar panel right in the top of the top of the trunk i believe also well, solar panel. the trunk well if you look at the back of it that's why i said it looks a lot like uh, the old tatra motors right that is that beautiful aerodynamic teardrop design that is the most aerodynamic design you can have in automobiles yeah they just really do a great job with it and this is a really killer looking car so uh for the car bus out there check out light your motors check out this electric story it's a great story and um you know, this could really be another catalyst, you know, maybe in a couple of years with solar technology, your GMs and Fords and BMWs and Teslas are going to have solar roofs. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I don't see anything about the expected solar output, but I mean, if it's sitting around outside all day, it could be, you know, I don't know, maybe up to 10, 12 kilowatt hours that you get for free, right? I mean, imagine if you live in Phoenix, right? You keep your car parked outside in Phoenix, you're going to be generating a ton of power. Yeah, I mean, you can easily have three to four kilowatts of solar on here. So, you know, if you have eight hours of sunlight or 10 hours of sunlight, it could be 30, 40 kilowatts. I don't know, kilowatt hours. Yeah, yeah. 
so those are my stories. Uh, quick and dirty, but loved every one of them. Yeah. All a little different, all with the same mission, which is you know just taking this planet forward. Yeah, so I thought for my articles, instead of uh, complaining about um, politics, I would <laughs> I would go over to the EIA's Today and Energy site, which is a great site. Every day they have a new graph and they talk about it. So I thought we would go through a few of these. So I have like five of them I'll go through real quick. Uh, this one is from two days ago, December 8th. U.S. battery storage capacity will increase significantly by 2025. So this is a great, great feel-good story. They have an awesome graph which shows exponential growth in U.S. battery energy storage capacity. I believe this is uh, utility scale and grid connected. So it's, they're not looking at EVs. Um, currently, we sit at 7.8 gigawatts of utility scale battery storage. This is dramatically more than we had uh, even a few years ago. As early as 2015, we essentially had zero. So this is fantastic. Planned deployments get us up to 30 by 2025, but it looks like there's still more to trickle in on that because it breaks the exponential trend. So this is really uh, good to see. How does that compare? It's very similar to the graph for utility scale solar capacity through 2017, which would bring it to about the same level. So they're about five years behind solar as far as uh, capacity goes. Uh, I do believe we're going to need a lot, lot more then 30 gigawatts. Um, let me check my notes. Uh, I think we have we have 500 gigawatts of natural gas generation installed, 200 gigawatts of coal, 100 gigawatts of hydro. So uh, when we get up into the hundreds, uh, we'll start making real, real deep impacts on carbon in the electric grid. Yeah, I thought this was great. And what I liked about this one uh, most in particular is I have to give a shout out to a former associate of mine, Matt Goldman, he and I did a white paper for a client a couple of years ago uh, at our former financial institution. And we talked about storage. We talked about 2025 being that catalyst year when you're going to get really get to the economies of scale and storage and there's no looking back. And it's great that we're starting, first off, EIA several years later is still confirming that 2025 number, you know, that 30 gigawatt number. And despite setbacks on supply chain and COVID, it looks like we're going to get there. Yeah. I just think, you know, once you get that 30 gigawatts installed, uh, your pricing should be able to come down because of uh, synergies. And yeah, yeah. Economies of scale, right? Yeah, exactly right. Here's another great uh, set of graphs. November 30th, U.S. wind generation falls into regional patterns by season. So yeah. this is very interesting to see. So what they're plotting is a capacity factor, which is essentially the percentage of the time the wind generator is running. Um, and the U.S. average is in the 30 to 40% range. That's the dotted line for all the regions. But you can see the different regions vary dramatically, and they also vary by season. Uh, and it looks like the West Coast has a totally different shape also. They're the highest in the summer and the lowest in the winter. And the rest of the regions tend to be high in the winter and low in the summer, um, with the stars being the upper and lower plains. That the lower plains would include Texas and the upper plains would go all the way to Idaho for some reason. Um, and kind of the disappointments are the Southwest and the East Coast, sadly. So hopefully if we get more offshore wind in those areas, um, that'll bring those numbers up. So I thought this was really interesting to look at. So again, uh, November 30th. Yeah, I like, you know, I like the fact that the West Coast, Southwest and upper plains 
power generation is kind of coalescing with like when the need is greatest, right? So, you know, just from a, you know, temperature either being too warm and you got to cool down or, or obviously the plains, it's the opposite. But yeah, that's really interesting about the interior east and east coast, but the east coast is moving on offshore. So let's see if we can get that, you know, a little bit more stabilized. Yeah. Like you said before, offshore has better capacity factors. So hopefully that'll, that'll start to pull that up. Um, this was interesting. This is November 21. We're going back now. One of the largest wind farms in the U.S. was completed in Oklahoma last spring. So I don't know if well, we didn't talk about this. So I wanted to bring this up. The Traverse Wind Energy Center, 999 megawatts, essentially one gigawatt uh, solar farm capacity installed. And then there's this great uh, uh, map of the U.S. with U.S. wind farms installed as of September 2022. And you can just see how the plains is just a, a big bonanza of wind farms. Uh, really great to see. And you also see the kind of questionable areas like in California, Nevada, and the entire southeast tends to be kind of missing the boat on wind. So it's amazing how a thousand words can come from a, a little map like this. Well, two two takeaways I saw from this. First, the map really reconfirms what we originally knew about wind onshore five, 10 years ago, which is that great wind corridor from the south to the plains, right? right. Middle, middle of America. So, you know, you have to say based upon where wind turbine technology, smaller turbines, you know, were being built three megawatts. It made sense to populate in the plain states first. So that's number one. And number two, I think it was the second or third paragraph. Notice how they talk about in Oklahoma, they have heaters in their wind turbines. And so they're not going to replicate the problem that Texas had during the great freeze a couple of years ago. Mm. Their wind turbines are going to be able to operate if that happens. And if I recall, Oklahoma didn't have the problems Texas did. Right. Right. Even so, though they're further north. Shout yeah. out to the Sooners. Sooner, sooner countries. Yeah. It says they can operate as low as negative 22 Fahrenheit. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. I'm going to keep rolling here. We got two more. Nearly a quarter of the operating U.S. coal-fired fleet is scheduled to retire by 2029. This is music to my news. I wish it was happening a little faster. Uh, they have the planned retirements here down to about 150 gigawatts. I would like to see that accelerate. Uh, coal is the largest per megawatt hour CO2 emitter of all of our technologies. So we'd really like to see that accelerate. And um, this is good news that maybe could be a little better. It could be better. Um, you know, it, 100% agree with you. My whole argument is this is why gas is okay right now because gas is kicking coal right. and, uh, off the grid. Right. While we're scaling up wind, while we're scaling up storage, while we're scaling up solar, we got to get coal off the grid as fast as possible. So I hope that one quarter turns to three quarters by, say, 2035. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, you're right. If you take all our coal generation and replace it with natural gas, you almost cut our CO2 emissions in half. So there you go. Let's do it. That's folks. a deal I would take. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Last one here. This is the one that drove me to the site, actually. I, I really wanted to find some data on this. So this is all the way back to November 1st. I've been wanting to do this for a while now. Norway remains a significant natural gas supplier to the EU. So I thought this was very interesting. I wanted to find some data on this because I made some statements. And I wanted to know the quantity of the issue. So we have some actual data here of daily natural gas flows into Northwest Europe. This is in billion uh, cubic feet per day since January 2021. You can easily see the decline of gas by, uh, from Russia by pipeline. 
And you can see how it's been offset by LNG imports and uh, from Norway by pipelines. So if you really want to know what's going on and you don't want any bias, you just want to see the data, uh, come to this one, EIA Today in Energy from November 1st. Um, really amazing. It makes me think that uh, the Europeans have a chance of making it through this war uh, without freezing it to death. So this is good to see. Yeah, two answers to this. One is, it's great to see the offset, but if you look closely at the grid, okay, you still don't have a complete offset by the natural gas supplied by Norway. So other, you know, the U.S. is still exporting. There's a lot of, you know, LNG uh, on taking taking place. Uh, one thing that, uh, just to answer a question you brought up a second ago, I, this is about a month old now, but right now weather forecast for Europe for the whole winter looks like it's going to be a warmer than usual winter. And if you want to light some candles at the holidays for the people of Ukraine, and even the people of Western Europe, praying for a warmer winter is certainly something in the cards right now. Like we really need that to take place for the health and safety of, of those poor people right now that are yeah. suffering so badly. Yeah, and as the war has kind of gone the wrong way for some people, they have gotten um, a little nastier in their prosecution of the war and started attacking the energy infrastructure. So that is not a good sign. Um, and something needs to happen there soon. So it's really interesting how NATO is supplying personal generators, not even the EU, but NATO to uh, the people of Ukraine. So small generators, gas fired generators are on patios and front porches and in front of restaurants and businesses throughout the whole country. So I hope more of that is getting there. If you're, you know, if you go to Lowe's and you need a generator and they're out of stock, you know, just take one for the team, people. That's all I got to say. Yeah. All right. Great stories. I mean, uh, great data that you presented here at the end. And I just think a, a lot of other good stuff is happening. I mean, we can keep continuing putting these great stories out there. And uh, there's just more and more of them, it seems like. Yeah, there's a lot going on. It's an exciting time to be in the field. Um, I had a great panel talk on Thursday at uh, the AI Summit in New York. We talked about AI for sustainability there's just so much to do. There's so much work to do. It's a great time to be in the field. There's lots of funding. There's lots of excitement. Um, things are starting to happen. So, yeah, it's a great Absolutely. time. Absolutely. And uh, I think uh, you're starting to see the money flow now from, you know, the, the Inflation Reduction Act. People are now starting to really identify where the tax credit opportunities are. Uh, you know, I'm happy in my day job. We have some uh, really good news that we'll be announcing over the next uh, couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, we're, I feel like the time for us to bring our product, the construction technology product to market is really there and the opportunity has been great. So there's a lot of optimism in the air this holiday season. Yeah. So, well, before that, before we conclude, we have to do our disclaimers. Uh, the views and opinions expressed by Lucas and myself are those of ourselves and not necessarily any organization we are affiliated with. And uh, any public company, any companies that we have mentioned that have public securities, we are not making a recommendation one way or the other on those securities. Please talk to a registered investment uh, representative before making any decisions. Yeah, and as always, you can find us on your favorite podcasting site. You just go there and you search for Pirates of Clean Tech and you click on the like or uh, subscribe or follow button and then uh, ask for notifications so you get them when they post. You can do the same on YouTube if you want to follow along the articles with us. You click the subscribe button there and the alarm bell so you get notified when uh, the new episode's post. Well, I'm excited to hear this episode. I'm a little sad that we're already ending it because that means I have to go work out in our home gym. <laughs> I really don't feel like doing that, but I have to. 
Yeah, I just got a gym membership, so now I actually have to go to the gym. It's uh, it's worth it. So everyone, <laughs> healthy. Uh, I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. And we are the Holiday Pirates of Clean Tech. <laughs> yeah. Uh,